I'm looking forward. Oh, I don't think I'm going to wear this up here. I'm looking forward to the day when we're going to be able to have a potluck together. We'll be announcing. Uh, hope you're hungry. Please stay. Uh, and that day's coming. That day's coming. We know instinctively how important relationships are, don't we? Clearly, we were built for relationship. It is the fuel that our souls run on. If you doubt this at all, just consider this. On your deathbed, what's going to seem most important to you? Are you going to be thinking about uh, how you wished you had made a little bit more money? Or are you going to be thinking about the people that you've loved and the Savior who's waiting to receive you? We're built for relationship, yet um, relationships are often difficult and fraught. We often fail at relationships, or at the very least, we know that relationships are complicated and messy in this world. It is true, isn't it? Our world is largely a world of messy and fractured relationships. Just think about it. Relationships between nation states, for millennia, they have been tense. Always. Relationships between liberal and conservative, you have watched the news. You know the story on that. Relationships in churches, ever heard of a church split? Ever been a part of a church split? Not always easy. Relationships at the workplace. Um, I read that more people are fired from their jobs for uh, personality defects than for uh, poor doing poor work, and I believe it, having worked in a lot of different places. Um, Relationships among families, divorce, unhappy marriages, parent-child relationships, other family difficulties, um, friendships can become broken. I came across a, a quote this past week from a poet I, I wasn't aware of named Rainer Maria Rilke, but this quote really struck me. To love another human being is perhaps the most difficult of all our tasks. It's a lifelong undertaking, isn't it, to love another human being? Um, it's also one of our most blessed and joyful tasks. Relationships, even though they are as necessary as oxygen, are also difficult. And I want to consider a passage from Luke chapter 3 this morning that says something truly significant about relationship. Luke chapter 3. It's right before the section, uh, the genealogy that Katie read. Luke chapter 3, beginning in verse, uh, verses 21 and 22. In Luke three twenty-one, God's word says this. When all the people were being baptized by John, Jesus also was baptized. While Jesus was praying, heaven opened, and the Holy Spirit came down on him in the form of a dove. Then a voice came from heaven saying, You are my son, whom I love, and I am very pleased with you. Now, I mentioned that this passage says something significant about relationship. It 
that may not be the case at first glance. It may require a second look, but this is a passage that deals with, with relationship. Now, in this passage, all three members of the Godhead are present. Did you take note of that? Um, it, it, it is a picture that, give, that gives us information. It gives us insight into God, into his nature and character. God the Son is in the Jordan River being baptized by John. God the Father, as the heavens open, is declaring his approval. You are my son whom I love, and I am very pleased with you. Or as the New Living Translation says, you are my dearly beloved son, and you bring me great joy. I love that. Jesus has perfectly submitted to the Father's will, and the Father is perfectly pleased and overjoyed by his beloved son. And the Holy Spirit is descending on this scene. He's descending on Jesus in the form of a dove. And the Spirit bears witness to the identity of Jesus that he is God's anointed one, uh, uh, the Jew, as the Jewish people would say, the, the promised Messiah, and that he is the divine Son of God. This scene provides a picture for us of one of the basic truths of the Bible. There is one God eternally present in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. One God in three persons. Difficult math but great, great theology. When I was an undergrad student at Harding University, the preacher, the very large church down the street from the college, uh, told a story about his young son one day asking him, Dad, if God is one, how can he be three? And the preacher, Mike Cope, said that he launched into this uh, deep theological explanation. Well, God is three, yet he's one. He's one, yet he's three. He's omnipotent and omnipresent, omniscient. And his son looks up at him and says, oh, so you don't understand either, huh, dad? That, that's one of my favorite stories uh, having to do with illustrating a biblical truth. Um, one God in three persons, that is hard to wrap your mind around, isn't it? Uh, it I'm not sure I'm wired up to be able to completely understand that. Or, you know, when you think you have God all figured out, let me know. We'll see if we can get you placed on a 72-hour psych hold. In viewing this scene from Jesus' life, there is one important thing that we need to keep in mind. God is a God of relationship. And it's illustrated in this passage. Uh, we, we see very clearly the relationship between father and son, even before the earth or anything in the universe was created, before the heavenly host of angels were made, there was relationship. God himself was in perfect relationship, perfect harmony, Father, Son, and Spirit, all as one. God is a God of fellowship. God is a God of relationship. It is central to who he is. God is intrinsic intrinsically relational, and he has created us in his image, and a part of that is that we are relational as well. And this God of perfect fellowship has sought a relationship with us through Jesus Christ, and that's a good thing. To personalize this, God has sought a relationship with you through Jesus Christ. Or to personalize this even more, God has sought you through Jesus Christ. He had you in mind the whole time. 
as we view, view this passage that bears witness about the person of Jesus, we also need to bear in mind this. Jesus is in nature God. It is who he is. There are two categories of individuals and things in the universe, creator and creation. We're in the category of creation, right? Jesus is in the category of creator. Jesus is creator, not creation. And this is crucial. Jesus is not a created thing. Um, at the beginning of John's gospel, the, the Bible declares this about Jesus. All things were made by him, and nothing was made without him. Colossians 1.17 declares he existed before anything else, and he holds all creation together. He made everything, and by his power, the universe coheres. Jesus created everything. He, he runs everything. Uh, he is large and in charge, and through him, the universe holds together. That's who our Savior is. He is eternal creator God, divine sustainer of the universe, king of kings and lord of lords. Constellations and galaxies tumbled from his fingertips. His footprints are in the Milky Way. Everything from DNA to dinosaurs to supernovas to black holes are a result of his creative genius and power. He is God. The next time you're facing a problem, which just might possibly happen sometime, keep that in mind. Our Savior Jesus is God, God the Son. And this God, Jesus, who took on flesh, was being baptized in the River Jordan. That Jesus in that water is divine, eternal creator, 100% God. But in this passage, we see also that Jesus is fully human, 100% human. That is complicated math-wise, but again, accurate theologically. Jesus is fully God, yet he is also fully human. So let's think about Jesus' baptism. Jesus was God. But in his baptism, he identifies with sinful human beings, or as Colvin was just saying a few minutes ago, he, he was one of us. In his baptism, he identifies with sinful human beings. You know, John's baptism was a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. You've read that before, probably a whole bunch of times. A baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And so I ask, how many sins did Jesus commit? What were they? Let's make a list. Our list is done. Zero, zilch, not, and nothing. Okay, then who was it who sinned? Us, me. Yes, we did. Jesus' baptism uh, he, he was to fulfill all righteousness. We know that the Bible says that. Jesus said that. And sometimes people ask, well, what does that mean to fulfill all righteousness? Well, the answer typically comes, uh, well, to set an example for us because we need to be baptized. I think that's true, but I don't think that is the complete picture. After studying this and meditating on this, I think there's another piece to that puzzle. That it, it is part of what it means that he set an example for, for me who would need to be, who would need to repent and who would need to reach out for forgiveness. 
But in his baptism, Jesus was identifying with us. Jesus was identifying with sinful humanity. In Matthew's account of Jesus' baptism, you remember John says to Jesus, you're coming to me to be baptized? I shouldn't be baptizing you. You should be baptizing me. And John had a point, I I, I think. Um, There was something in his mind that didn't make sense about this. This was an incongruous picture. It felt like there was something disjointed in the universe when this perfect Son of God was coming to this sinner to be baptized. And, And John could hardly make sense of all of this. And Jesus says, we need to do this to fulfill all righteousness. The only perfect man who ever lived was submitting to this religious rite, this baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. The only accountable person who had nothing to repent of was submitting to this, a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. But this, even though John couldn't add all of this up, this was the right thing to do. Because in terms, of Jesus, in terms of Jesus' mission, Jesus was identifying with sinful humanity. He was one of us, and he was doing this for us. And this is what his whole life was about. He came to put himself in our place. He came to put himself in your place. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Second Corinthians 5. So as Jesus was standing in the river that day in the sinner's place, with the Father watching, with the Holy Spirit descending, this foreshadowed what he would be doing about three years later when he was nailed to a tree and would suffer the pain and the punishment that we deserved. Again, he was one of us. He put himself in our place. This God of relationship, the God who for all eternity has existed in perfect fellowship, would seek a relationship with us through the atoning sacrifice of his son. In this world of broken relationships, Jesus came to restore our relationship with our Father. And as a part of that, a part of Jesus coming to earth is this, He came to show you how much God loves you. God wants a relationship with you no matter what it costs him. That's how badly he wants a relationship with you. That's how much he loves you. And it cost him everything. He paid the biggest price that he could possibly pay. We needed a savior, so he sent his son. I don't know who said this, but I like it. If our greatest need had been information, God would have sent us an educator. If our greatest need had been technology, God would have sent us a scientist. If our greater, greatest need had been money, God would have sent us an economist. If our greatest need had been pleasure, God would have sent us an entertainer. But our greatest need was forgiveness, so God sent us a savior. One night, many years ago, I heard Max Lucado preach, and he said something that has stuck with me all of these years and even all these decades, Um, and it was this. God, the king of the universe, is more in love with you and closer to your hearts at this very moment than you've ever dared allow yourself to imagine. 
Let that sink in. God, the king of the universe, is more in love with you and closer to your heart at this very moment than you ever dared allow yourself to imagine. If God had a wallet, your picture would be in it. If God had a refrigerator, your picture would be on it. He sends you flowers every spring and a sunrise every morning. And whenever you're ready to talk, he's eager to listen. He knows your name. He pays such close attention to you that he knows even how many hairs are on your head. That's how interested he is in every little detail of your life. He even gave up his own son for you. He did not withhold anything. To put it a different way, Jesus is your Savior. If you believe that, would you turn to your neighbor and say, Jesus is my Savior? Jesus is my Savior. So very practically, what that means this week in your life is this. Because Jesus is your Savior, your heart can be at rest. No matter what chaos is going on in your world, because Jesus is your Savior, your heart can be at rest. Uh, there's an old song that I think many of us have sung at some point. It's called Peace, Perfect Peace. And there's a, a couple of lines in that song that have always struck me. Peace, perfect peace, our future's all unknown. Jesus we know, and he is on the throne. No matter what chaos goes on in the world, you are in right relationship with the one who matters most. You don't have to carry the whole world on your shoulders because somebody's already done that. Let your soul find rest in God alone. Be at peace. And because Jesus is your Savior, your heart should be grateful. We can have hearts that well up in gratitude and overflow into joyful service. That's what God wants. That delights his heart. When we, when we really get this, how, how, just how loved we are in Christ, our entire lives become a grateful response to his wonderful love. Let your heart be at rest this week and have a grateful heart this week that overflows in joyful service because you have a Savior. Let's stand and sing the song of encouragement.